those of you that missed the um, Valentine banquet Friday night missed a good thing. It was just a great time. I laughed so hard, my sides hurt through uh, the weekend. We saw our distinguished elder, John Barnes, dressed up like uh, Cupid in red tights, <laughs> running about uh, shooting people with arrows and distributing kisses. Great time was had by all. Just a lot of fun. When I was a kid growing up in North Texas, I used to live in uh, part of that country known as the Cedar Breaks. And I used to spend a lot of my time wandering around in the woods. And I came to uh, Noah, an elderly gentleman who lived in a cabin back in a grove of trees. His name was Bob Williams. He was about 70 years old when I met him, and he was always to me Uncle Bob. And when I had the afternoons free, I used to go over and talk to him and learn quite a lot about his past. And on one occasion, we were talking, and he, was, uh, he referred to an injury that he received in the Bob War. And uh, I thought he was talking about uh, either some war between the revenues and uh, the, uh, the people who owned stills or uh, perhaps something like the Boer War or the Civil War or something like that. I didn't know what the Bob War was until some time afterward when I discovered he was talking about barbed wire. But to him, it was Bob War. And it uh, uh, just points up, I think, that sometimes we have communication problems. We think we're sending very accurately. We send with 100% accuracy, but people don't understand what we're saying. I heard of a man who who had just recently come to the States from France, and he was trying to explain to a doctor uh, that his wife was barren. And he said, she is impregnable. And the doctor looked a little surprised, and he said, no, no, she is inconceivable. And uh, that didn't quite get the point across, so he said, no, 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 she is unbearable. <laughs> And those are the kind of problems you run into from, from time to time. But the thing I think we recognize is that the problem really runs much deeper than merely differences in language. Even if we know uh, we have a common language and we use terms uh, that we, at least we can, we can agree on their definition, we still sometimes discover that we don't communicate clearly. I, I'm sure you've had the experience of sitting and talking to someone uh, perhaps for a long period of time. And when you get through, you discover that you haven't communicated at all. Most of the energy has fallen out on the floor and gone someplace, and, and you just haven't spoken to each other. You don't understand each other any better than when you began to talk. I can remember uh, conversations with Carolyn where we would decide, we'd sit down and try to decide on a course of action for the family, and we'd discuss it thoroughly and, and come to an agreement. And I would decide on what I felt was a common agreement. And a day or two later, Carolyn would say, why did you do that? And I'd say, well, that's what we agreed to do. And she'd say, no, that's not what we agreed to do at all. What we agreed to do was this. And I, I realized that somehow we just didn't communicate. We didn't understand. Both of us had intentions of communicating our feelings, but we just didn't get across. Or I remember another occasion when a, a group of of us on a, on a church staff met together to try to write a position paper and we thoroughly discussed a passage of scripture because we wanted a, a paper that we thought would represent fairly the position of all of the staff. 
And after we had hammered out a conclusion, we asked one man to write it, and he wrote it and sent it out and, it, and sent it out, and it didn't correspond at all with what we had discussed. And it was sort of a source of embarrassment to some of us because we simply didn't agree, but we had discussed the issue thoroughly. Now, we all have had that sort of experience. The question is, why don't we communicate clearly to one another? And uh, the passage that we're going to look at this morning explains why we have communication problems. It's the well-known passage in chapter 11 that deals with the Tower of Babel. Now, chapter 11, you'll note, follows uh, chapter 10. And... uh, That's actually more profound than it sounds because it's important to know what happens in chapter 10 to gain a full understanding of chapter 11. In chapter 10, you have the so-called table of nations, the distribution of of nations uh, as they descend from the sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And in chapter 10, verse 2, you have the, the family of Japhethites, the descendants of, of Noah's son Japheth, listed here. As you know, it's the, it's the style of the author of, of Genesis to place the less important genealogies first and dispense with these and then go on to the most important genealogies. And uh, since most of us here this morning are Japhethites, that gives us some idea of our importance in God's scheme of things because this genealogy comes first. The sons of Japheth are people like Gomer, these were the Gauls or the Salts, the people that, that later settled in Germany. And the name Germany apparently comes from this word. Magog, the people that settled in, in the northeastern part of Turkey. Madai, the Medes, who later became the Persian Empire. Javan, these are the Greeks, the Ionians. Meshech, Tyrus, the Etruscans or the Italians, later the Romans. And the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, these were the uh, Scythians, and later the Scandinavian people. Ripheth, the people that settled in Europe. And Togarma, the Armenians, are the people uh, who later gave the name Turkey to that that area. And the sons of Javan, Elisha, again a Greek tribe, our word Hellas comes from that term. And others, we'll not take time to define them all because some of some of uh, them are, uh, are not, uh, we simply don't know who they are. But these are the Indo-European people that settled in the area from the Indus Valley over in India all across uh, Turkey and up into Europe. Then, secondly, the Hamites are listed, the sons of Ham, or Cush, Mitzram, Put, and Canaan. And we talked about these, these people last week. These are the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, the Libyans, and the Canaanites. These people were all descended from Ham. And then in verse 21, the Semites. Sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. The sons of Shem were Elam. These were the Elamites who settled in what today is Iran. Asher, the Assyrians. Arphaxad, the people who, uh, from whom the, he- the Hebrew race came. Lud, the Lydians who who migrated to Turkey and settled there, and the Arameans, and so forth. These, these people are, are known. We can recognize their, their names today from this list. These were the Semites. So what you have in chapter 10 is a picture of, a, of the distribution 
of the descendants of Noah throughout the ancient world, Indo-Europeans up to the north, the Semitic people along the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and the descendants of Ham settling in North Africa and East Africa. Now, the reason for tracing this genealogy down through the through these generations is because in verse 25 we're told two sons were born to Eber. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. And then the genealogy stops at that point because that introduces chapter 11. And the division of nations because of the confusion of language is described in chapter 11. So it was during Peleg's time that the distribution of these 70 nations took place. They're scattering throughout the ancient world. Now let's look at chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Literally, they had one lip and one set of words. That is, they pronounced words the same way and they had a common vocabulary so everyone could agree on the meaning of words and the way those words ought to be pronounced. They had one language. Uh, it seems almost certain that Adam was given the gift of language when he was created, and he developed the art of communication. The gift of language was given to him as a part of his, a part of his responsibility to bring all things under his dominion. Language enables us to classify things and control things and to pass information on to the next generation. So Adam was given that as a part of his being created in the image of God and uh, that gift was passed on from one generation to the next so that they were all speaking a, a common language. That's something that's language is unique to man. Animals don't seem to have a language. They signal to one another. And uh, I just I read in, in the National Geographic some months ago that it, uh, in Palo Alto at Stanford, Stanford Research Institute, they have taught an ape to recognize certain words, even words that indicate emotions like fear and anger things of that nature, but animals don't have the capacity to speak. Only man can speak. That's a part of uh, his being created in God's image, something that enables him to control his environment. And that uh, gift continued until this point, so the whole world had in common one language and a common speech. And then in verse 2, we're given a description of their migration in a northeasterly direction from the mountains of Ararat, where the ark had settled, down to Shinar, which is Babylon. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and, and settled there. They came out of the ark, and they, they, they uh, fathered children, and those children grew, and the next generation came into being. And then as a clan, they began to migrate from the mountains of Ararat down into the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and finally... Uh, to the region that we call today Babylon, southern Mesopotamian Valley. Anthropologists will tell us that, uh, that the record in the rocks, the record uh, that archaeologists have uh, uncovered in their digs, confirms that man, that civilization did begin north of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and that men did indeed migrate down into Babylon and develop the civilizations that later were are found there, those we know from history, like the Sumerian Empire and the Assyrian and Babylonian Empires. Now, we don't need that kind of confirmation, but it's helpful to, to see again that Scripture is accurate when it, when it talks about historical matters. So they migrated down into Babylon, and they settled there. And then in verse 3, we read, They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks. 
and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. When you read this passage, it, it, it sounds very much like the typically grandiose descriptions of man's achievements that you see in the paper or hear on the news uh, all the time. Whenever man does something, he always applauds himself for his achievements. Uh, when we made the first landing on the moon, uh, the astronaut uh, Armstrong's comment was, I thought, very uh, objective and a very st fair statement of what they had accomplished. One small step for a man, one giant step for mankind. It certainly was that. But uh, our then-President uh, Nixon made the comment the next day that this was the greatest achievement in history. And I said to Carolyn at the time, now he knows better than that. Now, how can we evaluate a statement, uh, an event like that, uh, at that point in history? Any of us now could think of at least a half a dozen events in recent history that are far more significant than landing a man on the moon. But we just seem to be given to these sort of statements. We create a little, uh, a little, mar a little molecule of protein, and we declare that we have, we have created life. And uh, all of our statements that tend to be very uh, self-congratulatory. And this is what they're doing here. Let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, they did this because they had a premonition that they were about to be scattered over the face of the earth. We're told specifically that they built the city so they could make a name for themselves so they would not be scattered over the face of the earth. They recognized, even at this time, that there were forces inherent in society that were tearing, tearing society apart. There was some kind of centrifugal force that was dividing families and people from one another. And they recognized these forces. And we all do. We know that uh, unless you work hard at a relationship, it simply doesn't endure. You can't be static. A relationship is never static. You're we would like to be able to build a relationship and then have it remain that way, but it doesn't. Unless you're working at it, relationships tend to fly apart and disintegrate. Uh, all of us, I think, have gone through the experience as men of, of realizing that we need to spend more time with our families. We've been too busy at, at our jobs, and so we, we rearrange our priorities and we start spending more time with our family and we get things a little more stable, and then we think, now we can go back and spend more time on the job and things will run smoothly, but they don't. And within a few weeks, they're right back like they were. Relationships just naturally fly apart. It takes work to bind people together, and that's what they were discovering. C.S. Lewis, in his description of hell in The Great Divorce, describes it as a vast city, a dark, gray, dingy city, with people living light years away from each other, spread throughout the entire universe because they can't stand the sight of each other. When they first moved to hell, they lived together in little family units, and, and the, the most recent arrivees uh, lived, built houses together. But within a few weeks, they moved their house a little farther away, and, and after they've been there for a time, they've, they've moved clear out of sight of their nearest neighbor because they can't stand each other. And without God in a relationship, that's what, that's what happens to relationships. They tend to disintegrate, and they recognize this. And so they wanted to do something 
to keep themselves together. So they built a city. Instead of making God the center of their society, they, uh, they created another center, a city and a tower, they say, that will reach to the heavens. And even the, uh, the author here, Moses, describes this thing as, uh, as somewhat quaint because he, he says in verse uh, 3, they used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. In, in Moses' day, they used stone and mortar to build things with. The, the pyramids were quite ancient in Moses' day. But uh, he says in their attempts to try to create some sort of city, city for themselves and gain renown, they just used uh, bricks and tar, somewhat like uh, our describing someone in the past building a rocket to the moon out of wood. Uh, he sees even in his day the, the ineffectiveness of, of their attempts. So they set about to build a city that will bind them together. That was their plan. And here for the first time in the book of Genesis, you have men acting collectively in rebellion against God. Prior to this time, it's always individual men, uh, Cain or Nimrod, men of, of evil men, men of, of great uh, renown, but individuals acting in rebellion against God. But now you have all of man acting in concert. And God says there's no end to the evil that man will do. Now, God isn't threatened. He's not uh, frightened by what they're doing. He doesn't actually believe that they're going to, to, to accomplish their scheme. He's fearful for man. There's no end to the evil that man will do to himself if he follows through with this scheme. So God intervenes in verse 5. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same lang language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their lang language so that they will not understand each other. The expression, the Lord came down, is frequently used in the Old Testament to describe God's intervention in human affairs. It's an idiom. It's not, I don't think here, primarily intended to be irony. It's not that the that the tower was so small God had to come down to see it. That's not the point. It's that God determined at this point in history to intervene, to do something about what man was doing because he knew that if he pursued that course any further he would destroy mankind again just as uh, he almost did before the flood. And so he entered into human history to do something about uh, the course, the direction that, that they were taking. And he confused their languages. I think what he did was just speed up the natural processes that take place that cause languages to diverge. As you know, here in Idaho, um, there were probably half a dozen or more Indian languages that were spoken, and uh, the tribes couldn't understand each other. And in a very short time, the languages had diverged that much. The uh, Indians in the in Coeur d'Alene area, the Coeur d'Alene Indians couldn't understand the Shoshones, the Shoshones couldn't understand the Nez Perce. And all of this had happened in a, in a fairly uh, brief amount of time. And apparently this is what happened. God just accelerated that process. They were already beginning to separate in their hearts. And so God accelerated the process miraculously and confused their languages. See, that's all a miracle is. It's God entering into human events and changing things for a period of time to accomplish some higher purpose. This passage has bothered a lot of people because... 
they, they see languages changing today, and it seems to them impossible that, uh, that, that the sort of thing described here in chapter 11 could have occurred, but it's, it's a miracle. It's God entering into human affairs and changing things in order to accomplish some higher purpose. Suppose, for instance, there's a, a Martian in his spaceship hovering over Boise, and uh, he's observing, uh, much like Mork, and uh, he's going to take back a report to Mars on the way we behave. And he sees, he observes something about the traffic in Boise. When the lights turn red, people stop. Traffic comes to a halt. And when the light turns green, the cars begin to move again. So having observed this for a few months, he comes to the conclusion that red means stop and green means go. And there's some connection between those lights and the automobiles. And when the light turns red, the automobiles stop. And when it turns green, they go. That's a scientific observation. It's fairly valid. But one day he happens to be looking down on Boise and he sees a little white van pull out of the parking lot at the hospital and the red lights are flashing on top and it goes right through the red light, never slows down. And he says, aha, a miracle. Something has happened to change the laws. But no, you see, it's not really a miracle. It's some intervention for a higher purpose. And that's what God has done. He intervened in the course of human events in order to change things momentarily to accomplish a righteous and just end. He scattered people because he believed that, that this dispersion was a better thing than collective apostasy because together they would destroy each other. And he brought about this confusion of language. So we read that the Lord scattered them over all the earth and they stopped building the city. And that's why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And that's why we can't get together. That's why the United Nations can't agree. Even though they have translators there to interpret and translate the meaning of words. They just can't understand each other. That's why the salt talks are so difficult to, uh, to work out, because they can't agree on the meaning of language. That's why the situation uh, exists in the, in the Middle East today between Egypt and, uh, and Israel. And that's why families are broken and fractured and relationships disintegrate. The lines of communication are down. We can talk and talk and talk, but words don't mean anything. And uh, the difference, the differences in language and the differences in understanding come not from the fact that even that we speak different languages. It's a much, uh, the problem lies at a much deeper level. It's that we don't communicate with one another on any level. The confusion of languages is simply symbolic of the differences that exist on other levels. And in chapter 11, throughout the rest of the chapter, beginning with verse 10, you have a, another genealogy. It goes back to Shem and traces that genealogy down to Noah, or, or pardon me, down to Abraham in verse 26. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And uh, we're given the entire uh, genealogy here, beginning with Shem, because we were promised in chapter 9 that the God of Shem 
would be the one who was blessed and the one who would set things right. And so we're reminded with the insertion of Shem's name here that this is the line that God is going to use to bless the world and it terminates in Abraham. And in chapter 12, we're, we're given the story of Abraham, the beginning of that story, and how, how he was taken out of Ur of the Chaldees over to Canaan, and he lived there, and he preached the good news there. The good news that God heals relationships. And when one, one comes into a relationship with God, things begin to happen. He gives us a new heart. And um, the, the attitudes that separate us begin to be dealt with. Because what he does, what the gospel does, is teach us to love one another. And it's love that communicates, despite the difficulties we have in language. Paul says in Colossians that it's love that binds everything together. And when we come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then he grants to us the capacity and the desire to love one another. Love is not some, uh, some feeling, some mushy feeling that you have towards someone. It's the will and the power to act in loving ways toward them, to give up yourself in order to meet their needs. That's what love is. And that's what the gospel does to us when we open up our heart to Jesus Christ. And the beginnings of that gospel occur here with Abraham and terminate in the coming of our Lord Jesus. And we give up our life to him. And he gives us the capacity to act in loving ways toward one another. So despite the judgment on language, we can still communicate. The judgment is, is still there, just as the judgment on the ground continues to exist. We talked some weeks ago about the, the problem that all of, us, all of us men experience with our vocations. Our vocations don't satisfy us. No matter how hard we work, our vocations don't satisfy us because the ground is cursed. And uh, we discovered that our children don't satisfy, it, satisfy us. As mothers, you'll never be satisfied because the whole process of child-bearing uh, and child-rearing is marked by the curse. So uh, these are judgments on humanity. And the judgment on our language is just another of these, uh, of these judgments by God that we, we'll never understand each other. And if we depend upon words to communicate, we'll never get together. But what the gospel grants us is another line of communication, which is love and compassion and concern. Because we don't have to understand each other to communicate. All we have to do is be understanding. There, there are two ladies in the... In, in, in the uh, ancient church, first century church, who were in the, they lived in Philippi, and their names are mentioned in the book of Philippians. Their names are Yodia and Syntyche. Uh, someone has suggested that their names ought to be odious and soon touchy, because there were two ladies who just couldn't get along. They had apparently squabbled over something, and they wouldn't, they weren't speaking to each other. And they were probably sitting on opposite sides of the, of the meeting, church gathering, wouldn't have anything to do with each other, no communication. Now, I believe that Paul wrote the entire book of Philippians for their benefit. Theologians have wrestled for centuries over the significance of, of the Lord's self-emptying or emptying of himself in Philippians 2. It's a difficult concepts to understand theologically, but the point of it is very clear. Reconciliation comes in giving yourself up 
The Lord didn't cling to his prerogatives as God. He emptied himself, and he became a servant. And he goes on to describe that what puts people together is a spirit of servanthood and love and understanding and compassion. That's what binds us together. And then he appeals to Iodia and Syntyche to settle their differences on that basis. Agree. Even if you don't understand each other, even if you don't agree on certain elements, whatever caused the, the, the disagreement in the first place, the way to be reconciled is to give up your life to one another, to give of yourself. And that's the way we learn to communicate once the Lord Jesus changes our heart. We begin to operate on an entirely different wavelength. For instance, with our children. Have you ever had one of these discussions with your children when they say to you, Dad or Mom, you just don't understand? And I don't know what your reaction is. Mine very often is to say, yes, I do. I understand thoroughly. And the problem is this and this and this and this. And after a while, they're not talking. And I find it's a one-way conversation. I'm spraying the, the air with words, and they're just sitting there. And they've tuned me out, and I can't blame them. Because the problem is I don't understand. And perhaps I don't need to understand at that point. What I need is to be understanding and to sit and listen while they talk, not say anything. Paul says the kingdom of God does not come through words, but through power. There's another way to communicate. I don't have to use words. Perhaps it's through listening and, and trying to understand and through indicating in various ways that I love them and care for them, even though, even though we have a problem communicating. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, says that when the kingdom comes, it describes it first as the coming of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Messiah. But what he's saying, really, is that when Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, he will turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. That's what the Lord does. He enables us to speak heart to heart, even though we may not understand. You see, the problem is not a generation gap. The problem is not that... Uh, that we're years apart in our thinking. It's that we're hearts apart. And we're thinking of ourselves and our needs and our problems and our embarrassment when they act a certain way and our aspirations for them, which they've disappointed. And, and we don't understand their heart and we don't want to understand their heart and we don't want to listen long enough to hear what they're really saying. And we need to remind ourselves that we do have a communication problem. That's part of the judgment. But we can show compassion and love and concern and interest and be understanding, even if we don't understand. The same thing is true of our wives. Have you ever come home, men, and felt the chill in the house? And they're a little cold, a little withdrawn. And again, our tendency is to use words. What's wrong? What's going on around here? What have I done now? And, uh, and we just chill things down further. Instead of being understanding and realizing that the problem probably lies deeper than even they understand. Perhaps they feel insecure or afraid or threatened in some way by something we've done or perhaps something that's happened elsewhere, and they don't even know what needs to be done or said or how to explain their feelings. 
And again, you see, that's not a time for words. That's a time for affection and for love and for assurance and to give them the kind of security that they need. Or, as Paul tells us, or Peter tells us, if you have a husband who's not uh, fulfilling his responsibility as the spiritual leader of the house, they're not praying with you, they don't seem to have their spiritual priorities aligned correctly, they're preoccupied with money or with business or with power or something else or neglecting the needs of the family, even though they may be Christians. Peter describes them as unbelieving husbands, if they're unbelieving in some element of their life. Peter says you win them without a word, not by nagging, not by trying to communicate with words, but by your behavior. That's what communicates. Peter says they'll be won by the quiet, respectful behavior of their wives. That's another level of communication. Or if it's your parents that you can't communicate with and you've tried desperately but they just don't listen. It's love that communicates. It's the silent language of love. And that's what we learn from this passage. The Bible is always very, very realistic about life. It tells us about things as they are. It tells us that we do have a communication problem. And it's much deeper merely than differences in language. There's a difference in hearts. But when the love of Christ comes into our life, Although the, the communication problem on, on the level of words still exists, there's another level of communication that we need to use by showing understanding and compassion and love for one another. Now, Scripture tells us that uh, God's going to set everything right, and someday uh, we're all going to speak the same language, and we're going to be able to communicate clearly the things that we feel. But uh, at the present, that's not so. When I was in Israel some years ago, I visited the Museum to the Holocaust. <clears throat> and uh, it was one of the most difficult experiences of my life to walk through these chambers and see one room after another where there were pictures of entire communities that were destroyed. Children, parents, grandparents, entire families destroyed. And uh, it was just more than I could handle. I was in there for a while, and I had to get out into the fresh air, and I went out the front door, and as I walked out the front door, someone had inscribed on the, on the wall in front of the door in Hebrew the words from Zechariah 14. On that day, the day when the Lord comes to set things right, the Lord will be one, and his name will be one. That is, there is a time coming when everyone will name the name of Jesus Christ. And he'll set things right. Now that's going to happen. Isaiah tells us that, that the nations will speak the language of Canaan. We'll speak one language. And I think the day of Pentecost is a, is a foreview of what that will be like. Uh, the, the apostles spoke in the languages of the people that were there, gathered at Pentecost, and they understood one another. But for right now, that's not so. God hasn't set everything right yet. We still have problems in communication. We always will until he comes back. But he's given us another way. It's the language of love. And we have in, in Christ the power to communicate on that level, to be understanding, to be compassionate, to listen to one another, to tolerate one another, to forgive one another 
when we don't understand. All of that comes as a result of Christ's life in us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we all of us so many times have struggled with this issue and wondered why we can't say what we really mean or why people don't understand what we mean when we communicate so clearly. And we thank you that that we have an added dimension. Now, another way of, of getting close to people, another way of resolving differences, teach us, Father, not to be disappointed when we don't communicate clearly on the level of words and help us to learn how to love one another despite our differences to be forgiving and tolerant and to learn to listen to what people are really saying and to learn to show our love and affection in various ways for one another and draw us together in a in a bond of that love creates we would pray that for us as a church and we would ask for that as, as families and as individuals, that we as parents and as children would be drawn to one another and as husbands and wives. We thank you that you're the one who does that. In Jesus' name, amen.